Good morning, folks. It's uh, about eight o'clock on uh, Monday of Easter week. Uh, I've got my uh, cup with me here this morning. And just so you know, uh, my hope is that uh, each morning this week will have some fresh material for you uh, as we go through the, the book of Luke, uh, as we build up to Easter, uh, which is, of course, the most important uh, celebration of the Christian calendar. Christmas happened so that Easter could happen. Christmas is a means to an end. Easter is the climax, it's the crescendo. It's the whole point of our faith that Jesus Christ, not, not just that he came, which is, is wonderful and is precious, but the fact that he came to die, to forgive our sins, to take the burden of our sins, and that he rose again on the Sunday. That's what makes our faith different to every other faith. It's what is distinctive. It's what we build our hope on. Uh, and that's what we're rejoicing in. And so I know it's going to be very different for a lot of people this year. Um, but it is my favourite time of the year. And even if we can't have our big Easter worship time, if we can't have our special communion service, if we can't have our testimony night, I hope that these messages... Uh, this week will we'll make Easter a wee bit special for you. But before we do it, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in times of difficulty, in times of trouble, you have a way of speaking to us with a clarity. You have a way of um, making things so timely. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign timing. And so, Lord, we would just pray, Lord, that this word will speak to us today. And we ask this in your name. Amen. As we come into Luke chapter 20, the extent to which Jesus has come in and just turned the whole thing upside down is really becoming evident. Three groups of leaders now, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees will all confront Christ. Uh, it's almost like a united front. Um, Christ was like the one thing that they could all agree on. Um, he threatened their grip on, on their power and their influence and so he had to go. Now, if you remember from yesterday, we finished by looking at how Christ came in riding on a donkey, fulfilling prophecies in Daniel 9, Zechariah 9, how this was the day that he arrived where the, the people would, would be allowed to say as much, he is the, the Messiah, Hosanna. This was also the day that the Passover lamb was chosen, the 10th of Nisan. And according to the law in Exodus 12, that lamb needed to be scrutinized. It had to be examined before it could be deemed worthy of sacrifice. It had to be selected, yes, but then it also had to be proven. And that's what this chapter does. Now, remember what he did on Palm Sunday. He cleansed out the, the tradesmen the from the temple. Why? Well, it's Passover. Many people traveled far and wide to sacrifice at the temple. For that reason, a lot of people didn't bring their own lambs from home. It was a lot of hassle trying to get a lamb there unblemished. So the temple said, well, don't worry. We've got you covered. And for an exorbitant price, we'll sell you a temple-approved lamb with our seal of approval on it. Now, some people did bring their own lambs. Uh, some stopped in at Bethlehem on their way and got a lamb there. But the temple was filled with inspectors, one uh, who more often than not would decide that such lambs after long journeys were unsuitable. They disqualified and confiscated the lambs only to wash them up, flip them and sell them for, guess what, an exorbitant price. 
Now, of course, the only currency that was accepted in the temple was the unique temple shekel. But don't worry, for those of you who have traveled a far away, we'll gladly exchange your currency for temple shekels for an exchange that was, yeah, exorbitant. So, of course, Christ lost it with these ones and he turned the tables and he did it at the start of his ministry. He did it at the end because the fact that these people were turning a nation's desire to worship God into a corrupt business model. They were using a, a love for God and a thankfulness for God to cash in. That angered him deeply. But this, the fact that he did this also fulfilled another prophecy. This time it's Malachi 3, verse 3, which speaks of a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the, Le the sons of Levi, which are the priests, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Jesus is this refiner, this purifying force in chasing away the con artists in the temple. Now, in chapter 20, these key three leading groups will examine Christ and it's the last time that they're going to try and get answers from him. Yet, this chapter in Luke will also tell us that these religious people then will examine the lamb and yet reject the lamb. But also in this chapter that the lamb will now examine them, will expose them. Yet we'll see that the lamb will also go and die for them. The leaders are full on bloodthirsty at this point, uh, and uh, here the questions get very loaded. Uh, everything that they ask is now just a trick to get Jesus to say something that will turn the people against them. They can't just go and kill Jesus. The people will riot. So they need the people to turn on Jesus, and then they can strike. So let's read from verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teacher of the religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gives you the right? So that's a really crucial question that everyone has to find an answer to. Who is Jesus to tell us how to live our lives? Because either he is who he says he is and then has every right to have full control of every aspect of our life, or he's a fraud and therefore has zero authority to tell us anything. It's not an uh, uh, black and it's not a grey issue. It's either black or it's white. It's one or the other. It, it can't be in between. I could point to scripture that says, yes, all authority is given to him. That's in Matthew 28, 18. It's in Ephesians 1, 20. I could point you to external point, uh, things that show accuracy, reliability. and uh, But I know that he has the authority of sin and forgiveness and authority of eternal life because that's my experience in my life. It's been my experience that he never fails. That he, yes, he's often confused me, amazed me, bemused me, but never has he abandoned me and never has he failed me. And that's my experience. This is more than just an idea. This is more than just a book coming up with a theory. It's real. And the risen, reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords reigns over this world and over his mission with absolute authority. Nothing is outside his sovereign will. If he meets with resistance, he'll either allow it for his purposes or he will overcome it for his purposes. His sovereign purposes are never thwarted. That's his, his authority in action. In Isaiah 46, it says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
You see, the question of his authority is so important because if he has authority, then he can do the things that he has promised that he will do in his word. And that unleashes in me this flood of hope. Not one that has kind of his fingers crossed. Well, maybe, just maybe it will happen. But one that's built on expectation. He has said it. He will do it. Because he has the authority to make it so. And so these people are asking the question, okay, Jesus, what makes you think that you can say the things that you're saying? Why do you have this authority? And if he turns around and says, well, I am my authority, then the Jews will write because, well, he's just trashed the temple as a rogue operator. If he says, well, God has given me this authority, then the Romans who are watching are going to pull him in. He's going to be a troublemaker for them. So Jesus does a very Jewish thing, a very rabbinical thing. He answers their question with a question. He says, verse 3, let me ask you a question first. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Now this is wonderful because what Jesus does now is put them in the spotlight. They had hated John the Baptist because he was baptizing people outside the temple system in the River Jordan. He was baptizing Jewish people as a proselyte, as a Gentile, as a non-Jew. He was baptizing them, but in doing so was demanding a change in their life. He was demanding repentance. The temple only asked for a ritual, not repentance. John the Baptist was also the one who said, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was also related to Jesus. Their mums were cousins of some description. John the Baptist was also a public supporter of Jesus. And so he puts them in the spotlight then by saying, okay, well, what about John? Verse five, they talked over among themselves. If we say his authority is from heaven, he'll ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they're convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied that they didn't know. And Jesus said, well, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. They don't answer him. Jesus doesn't answer them. But that doesn't mean he ignores them. Rather, he builds on it and he tells them a parable. And it's incredible because in 10 verses, he gives them the entire history of the nation of Israel. Verse 9. Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up and sent him back empty handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up and sent him away empty handed. A third man was sent and they wounded him and chased him away. Okay. Just pause here now because the meaning of this picture will not have been lost on any of these religious people. They prided themselves on knowing the scripture back to front and front to back. They, they would have known that Jesus is picking up the picture of Israel as the vineyard that the Lord has planted. That's from Isaiah chapter 5. And so they will have known it rich, that this is a rich and fertile land, that they are blessed. The man who owns it has given it to contract workers or tenant farmers to care for it and, and to maintain it for him. It's God giving the nation of Israel to the Jews the promised land. But they also know the history of Israel is littered with stories of how people who came to represent God has been badly treated. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was buried in quagmire and then stoned. Amos and Elijah both were on the run for their lives. Zechariah was murdered in the temple itself. That's Second Chronicles 24. God, the landowner, then is in this position. Most landowners at this point would send for the authorities. They would kill the contract workers. They would flush out the, the tenant farmers. 
But this is not where the parable ends. This is where the Old Testament moves into the New Testament picture. Verse 13. What will I do? The owner asks himself. I know I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. What mercy, what grace. God's response, they've rejected my servants, but they won't reject one who has my authority, one who bears my name. I'll send my son. Verse 14, but when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. See, there's a Jewish law that says land without an owner can be claimed by the workers. So they're going to enforce that. Verse 15, so they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to him? Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Now, Jesus is really moving on now from the passage in Isaiah 5. He is going to go and give the inheritance of the Jewish people to a people, a different people. What, the Gentiles, the non-Jews? Well, yeah, that's exactly what did happen. But the vineyard is not something small and petty like a nation, a land, but it's the church, the spirit of God that's in us. It's not the richness of wealth, but the richness of God himself. That's the great treasure. Verse 16, how terrible that such a thing should ever happen, the listeners protested. But Jesus looked at them and said, well, what does this scripture mean then? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. But they were that they were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So here Jesus changes the imagery. He goes from the rejected son of Isaiah 5 um, to the rejected stone of Psalm 118. And without going through all the other Old Testament verses, Jesus is saying, I'm the son that the landowner sent. You think that by rejecting me, you can get the, the riches for yourself, the power for yourself, the glory for yourself. Well, without the cornerstone, you're, it's going to end in ruins for you. Peter himself will quote that psalm and make reference to it when he preaches in several more weeks. In the very same temple courts. Let me refresh your memory with that story. Remember Peter and John, they're in the temple at the beautiful gate. They see that man who's been sitting there for all this time. He's lame. He's begging for money. And Peter says those famous words, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man was healed right there in the temple courts. And so the leaders, like right here in the, speaking to Jesus, they reacted, Peter and John. And they said, well, what authority do you have to do this? It's the same question. What name do you come to us with? What's the name you're using? It's a question of authority again. And Peter says this, if we are being judged this day for a good deed done to a helpless man, then be it known unto you and to the house of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but by whom God had raised from the dead, does this man stand before you whole? He was the stone rejected by you builders and has become the chief cornerstone for there is salvation no other name than the name of Jesus. A very bold proclamation and a similar nature to what we're reading here in Luke. Look at verse 19. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests, they want to arrest Jesus immediately because they realize he's telling the story against them. That they are the wicked farmers, but they're afraid of what people might say. 
Now let me just fight through this next part. But again, the leaders are examining and expecting the Passover lamb. And so far, Christ is passing the test and that's really bugging the leaders. They can't find any fault. They can't trap him. So they change tack. Verse 20, watching for their opportunity, the leaders spent, sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he'd arrest Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right and not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Oh, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But those sweet words are laced with poison. Now tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now tax is always a contentious issue, isn't it? Especially for the Jews, they feel crushed under the weight of Roman taxation. Now, taxes are necessary. The Romans did many amazing things in the Middle East. Roads, infrastructure, aqueducts. The best thing that Rome did was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. With Roman rule came Roman law. With Roman law came Roman law enforcement. And in the Middle East, that can't be underestimated. But here if Jesus says, yes, taxes are great, the people are going to turn on him. But if he says, no, taxes are terrible, don't pay them, well, the authorities will punish him. It's a catch-22, or at least so they think. Verse 23, he saw through their trickery, love that, and said, show me a Roman coin. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now, that's an admission that will hurt them deeply. Taxation, yes, is a burden, but it's also a spiritual burden for the Jews. Because remember, according to the second commandment, there should be no graven image. It's bad. The Talmud, in fact, comments on the second commandment saying, and it takes a very strict stance against producing images, ruling it's totally forbidden. And remember, according to Exodus, it's not just images of God. It's images of on the earth and, and the oceans and, and all of it. So not only did the Jews have to pay taxes, which they hated, they also had to carry Roman coins, which have graven images of Caesar and priestly robes on. And they have to carry those around with them. It's so destroying because in paying taxes, they didn't have, want to pay. They also had to break the second commandment constantly. Verse 25. Well, then Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And so they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they became silent. There's two parts to this answer that Jesus gave. Part number one, an earthly obligation. Part number two, there's a heavenly obligation. See, we have an earthly obligation to give taxes to the authorities. His face is on it, his mugshot's on it. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. It's his. He minted it. Give it back then. He wants it. Give it to him. But now if you read your Bible, there's two very overt places where this makes it very clear. One is Romans 13, the other is 1 Peter 2. That says, be submissive to government authorities. Goes as far as to say as kings and governors, we might say prime ministers, politicians, councils, presidents. And I will say this, whatever you think of our prime minister at the minute, every single Christian should be praying for him. I'm not a fan of Boris. But you better believe I'm praying for him as he's in hospital at the moment with coronavirus. I'm praying for him as he leads the government through this pandemic. Uh, and I'm praying for him because once that's all sorted, and, and as a country we start recovering and we start grieving and we start getting back to some sort of normality, he has to go back and sort out Brexit. I remember back in 2019 and we thought that the worst this year would bring would be all the Brexit stuff. <sighs> we were younger then, more innocent. But we have to pray for Boris. We have to pray for those who are leading us.
That's what Paul said. That's what Peter said. And Jesus says two things here. Caesar has a right to collect your taxes. He's got his image on it. But God has a right to collect your worship. Caesar has the right to your revenue. But God has the right to your reverence. Give your portion of money to Caesar. But give all of yourself to God. The coins bear his image. They're his. But you bear the creator's image. Give yourself to him. The last group come to try and challenge Jesus now. They're the Sadducees. Now, they're very different to the other group that, that, that have been about. They are rationalists, whereas the Pharisees are legalists. The Sadducees don't believe all of the Bible. They'll just take the first five books of Moses. Thank you very much. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in the resurrection. Anything supernatural, put a pen through it. They, they reject it. They're theological liberals of their day. They didn't believe it. They didn't hold to it. It's a nonsense. They're the opposite to the Pharisees. So Jesus really was the one thing that they could agree on. In fact, many priests were Sadducees, not Pharisees at the time. Verse 28, they posed this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there are seven brothers. The oldest were married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. And then the third brother married her. And this continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also dies. Tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. They come up with this really ridiculous scenario where seven brothers die. Now, I think most people would assume that the woman is probably killing the men at this point. Seven brothers all died just after marrying this woman. Okay, she's suspect number one, very obviously. But they're making fun of the law that we see at work in the book of Ruth between her and Boaz of the kinsman redeemer, family member stepping in to protect the woman, to keep the land in the family, to, to secure their future. But they make fun of it. I mean, who gets the wife in heaven? Well, she probably killed them also. I would imagine none of the brothers actually wanted her in heaven anyway. But it's a ridiculous scenario because they are highlighting what they think is a ridiculous theology. Verse 34, Jesus replied, well, marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will neither they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. So Jesus says, look, marriages aren't heavenly things. Now, I'm sure my wife is absolutely heartbroken that this one life with me is all she gets. Yeah, I mean, you can really see how sad she is when she looks at me and she just says, Jeff, marrying you is just like a life sentence. And I look at her and I go, oh, I love you too, dear. Now, this life's not long enough for me. Well, maybe that's how she thinks it. Maybe other people are comforted by this verse, and you know who you really are, huh? You're really, it really is going to be heaven when you don't have fish face to put up with, huh? But notice he says they're like angels. They're not actually angels. Jesus says when we are dead, we do not become angels, but we do become like them in the sense that we be, we are eternal, which means we don't need to procreate, which means that there's no children, which means there's no families, which means there's no need for marriage. A marriage is limited till death us do part. Verse 37. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, well, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. 
long after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. This is why studying the Bible is so important and why accurate Bible work is necessary. It's present tense. When God speaks to Moses, remember the Sadducees, they only like Moses' books. So Jesus says, okay, well, let's talk about Moses. He said about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He never said, I used to be their God, but I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am still their God. I am still in relationship with them now. So in one sweeping move, Jesus says, in the scripture, you believe points to a logical conclusion that God is bigger than just this life. Now, let me finish off the chapter really quickly, because now the lamb inspects the inspectors. Verse 41, Jesus presented them with a question. Why is it, he asked, that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? For David himself wrote in the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honour at my right hand. Since David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Now, if you're not familiar, the term son of David is the most common used term for the Messiah in Judaism. So listen to this. David said himself said, and he's quoting Psalm 110 here, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, literally it's Yahweh said to Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord. Jesus is saying you're looking for a Messiah to be the son of David, a human descent, because you don't believe in all the supernatural stuff. But David calls him Lord. He's not looking down to a descent, but he's looking up to Messiah. So how can the Messiah be David's Lord and also David's son? There's only one reasonable, logical answer to this question. And if you were there, I'm sure all of you would be able to answer it, wouldn't you? You say, well, sure, yeah, I know the answer to this. It's because the Son of God is God the Son. He is human in nature. He's divine in nature. That's what Jesus is getting at. These Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection of the supernatural just got their theology handed to them in bits by Christ. You're looking for the Messiah? Well, not only will he bring about the power of resurrection, but he will do it by being both human and divine. God incarnate. And the tragedy revealed in this chapter is simple. People could have seen the Messiah in front of them, but they refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah because he didn't quite fit their expectation. He didn't quite look the way they thought he would look. He didn't quite come across the way he thought they thought he should come across. I wonder if you're struggling with Jesus, especially with everything that's going on, because he's not doing exactly the things that you think he should be doing, that he's not quite the guy you thought he should be in these moments, in these times. Trust me, the real version of Jesus is better than the one that you're imagining. Trust me, I don't know exactly how you're imagining him, but the real one is better. His ways are higher, his ways are better. Trust me on that. But heed the warning of Hebrews 3 says, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The real Jesus is better than anything else you have. It's better than any religion, even if that religion is built in the Christian church. Religion isn't going to help you, but the real Jesus can. The real Jesus is better than friends that can try your best to be there for you in these times. But they can't always be there. They don't know exactly what you're going through or how you feel, no matter how hard they try. But the real Jesus does. And he comes to you as you are, knowing what you're really like and loves you totally and completely.
these groups asked the questions. They tested him, found that they couldn't fault him. I wonder if you'd be able to do that today. What's your question? What's your doubts about Jesus? Because if you genuinely come and seek him, we're told that you'll find him and you'll find that he satisfies. You'll find that he has the authority to bring healing, to bring peace to your life. He has the authority to give you a clean start, a fresh start. If you come and you put your trust in him, even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is beyond our expectation. Lord, that you're a God that doesn't just meet it. But Lord, your ways are so much better than our ways. Your, your thoughts are so much higher. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can't grasp who you are. Because if we, if we could grasp you, it means that you're somehow reachable or your thoughts are somehow attainable. But Lord, the fact that you bewilder us and go beyond just shows how much higher you are than us. Father, we do pray for those in leadership. Lord, we pray for Boris Johnson this morning as he wakes up in hospital. Lord, we pray that you'll give him a quick recovery. Um, Lord, that he can get back to the business of leading. Lord, our, our government needs stability. It needs help. Lord, it needs you. And so, Lord, again, not only keep them safe physically, but Lord, spiritually, Lord, move in their lives. Lord, give them a wisdom that comes from you. Give them a realisation of Christ. Lord, give them everything that they need to uh, govern in a godly way. And so, Lord, as we build towards Easter, we just would ask that you'd watch over us now. Lord, help the excitement to build. As days blur from one into the other, Lord, help us to mark this uh, special time. And we ask this in your name. Amen.